0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Today, I'm speaking with Araceli Camargo and Josh Artis from Centric Lab. They work on neuroscience, and they try to help people to understand key ways in which humans are affected by the city. I asked Ericelli to share with me how are some of the ways that the city affects us and whether it really is just a very stressful place for humans to live.
1: My name is Ericelli Camargo and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. I am the lab director for Centric Lab, which is in partnership with UCL, so University College London. And yeah, we're, our focus is looking at how to make habitats healthier, and which that means more inclusive, um, physically, um, and mentally also healthier for across all demographics. So we look at things like neurodiverse people, um, different age groups, um, because I think that is one of the things that is missing from cities, equity.
0: So tell me a little bit about how neuroscience can help us understand the
1: city as a habitat? Okay, well, um, our definition of neuroscience is possibly the broadest that we can get away with. (laughs) Um, So this means that we are looking at the full human system. So not just brain, um, but brain and body, which is a little bit of a funny thing to say anyway, because the brain is within the body. So to even have that distinction is a little bit odd, but sometimes um, science. gets itself quite quite twisted because we've had a long predilection or a long um, era of neuroscience with a lot of status on the brain. but when you look at systems like the HPA axis, which is what governs stress, we realize actually it is a whole system. so when you respond to stress, you do so um, through a conversation between the hypothalamus and pituitary glands which are in your, inside your brain and then also um, um, with your adrenal glands inside your, 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 your body. Um, and that's what I find really interesting because we're constantly responding to the built environment. So how the built environment, you know, it can either put us in constant stress, which then we reach something called an allostatic load which then has long-term effects. You start to have a corrosive effect on the body. So that's when you have conversations about depression, obesity, diabetes, and that is where our work comes in. So as I said, it's a very big definition and broad definition in neuroscience. Um, Because again, when you're looking at things like depression or obesity, they Obesity is seen as a very physiological phenomenon, but it actually has a lot of attributes that are, would consi- be considered uh, a mental health issue. So obesity is actually studied under neuroscience because it's highly linked to depression and anxiety. Equally, depression, which is often thought of as a very mental phenomena, also has physiological implications. Um, people with depression have shown differences in their pain threshold, that they experience pain um, much more acutely in some cases than people without depression. Um, physiologically even, they're, they're, so their facial recognition is different in some cases. That they've, they've done tests where people with depression gaze Differently. So either what they're paying attention to the environment or within a face is different than people without depression. So they're actually encoding and taking in information very differently than people that are not depressed. So that's why we're looking at the whole system and we're thinking, OK, well, how do we make, if we want to make cities healthier, then we have to understand the human system and how the human system is colliding with all the different stimuli in the built environment. Are
0: cities by their nature stressful?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think because the city is an environment, an environment will always require a stress response. So stress response is quite neutral. It's fine. We need we need it because we can't just be blobs that don't react to anything. So whether it is, for example, um, you hear a noise that you haven't heard before you're prompted to pay attention to it. So then from there, you, your, your system decides, is it a noise that then presents a threat or not? If it does present some sort of a threat, then your stress response is engaged, and then you have the next form of decision-making to do. So for example, if we were crossing the street and you heard normal car, no engagement. But if you heard possibly an ambulance and you were about to cross, stress response is engaged, and you move yourself out of the way, you wouldn't obviously across the street um, um, because uh, an ambulance would be a salient stimuli, something you, you would need to respond to because they need to move and sometimes you're in the way of them so you would have to respond accordingly. Um, the problem is when we're building habitats that don't allow people to come back to homeostasis, don't allow people to come back to equilibrium so it's a constant. Um, so it's the noise of the ambulance but then it's congestion in the sidewalk so you 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 don't have any clarity then there's the physiological side like breathing in polluted air um, then you might come home at night and your street has a lot of uh, light pollution so you don't get the full darkness that you need and there again you're having to your body's having to mitigate against what naturally would be time to sleep you're now on your system stays on and um, some studies indicate that because we're telling our body to stay on for longer, either because of light pollution from the outside or our own work habits, um, the system essentially says, okay, I'm going to change, I'm going to stay on for longer, changing our um, biological functioning. Um, So no, I I don't think that they naturally should get you to the point where you are developing diseases. I think um, when we look at cultures, um, indigenous cultures that have built habitats for millennia, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, And um, whether it's people in the Faroe Islands that live with one with their ecosystem, that they try to pay attention to climate change and not have as much biological impact, sorry, uh, their own human um, impact on the on, the, on their habitats or people living in the middle of the Amazon. I mean, technically they are full of stimuli, probably at par of a city and are having to negotiate a lot of different pieces of information, but they're also not getting, they know how to, to mitigate a bit better than when us at cities that we're just constantly bombarding humans with, here's another thing and another thing and another thing. And you know, and that's not even talking about things like safety, inequality, poverty that people face as well. Again, it's another load on the system. You use the term
0: neurodiverse, and I have a sense of what that means, but I think it's probably a good one to kind of go into about um, who does that that term kind of refer to, and and what are the ways in which the city is not really catering to that diversity?
1: Um, So, Historically or classically, the definition of neurodiversity um, was started as as a movement, so um, at par to a civil rights type movement. That um, people it includes people with autism spectrum disorder. Um, although I should caveat it that that is the clinical term. A lot of people that are um, autistic prefer to be identified as autistic or on the spectrum rather than have it be a disorder. So. Um, or Tourette's, or um, ADHD; um, those had been the classic definitions. The big one that dominates is autism, um, and the idea is that they want more inclusion and equity within the rest of the world. So, access to finances, access to 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 to, to society, um, and, but from the context of. Urbanism, No, I don't think we we cater. I mean, cities, our infrastructure, so when I say cities, very much the infrastructure is there for the young, the the uh, mobile-abled person, um, and possibly quite physiologically strong. Um, It's not meant for anybody else, if you look at the infrastructure. You know, sometimes I wonder when, when you see lights that switch really fast I think well I can cross I can walk fast or I can run what does that mean for a person that is blind or a person again the neurodiverse or autism that there might they might have problems with understanding what cues to pay attention to so that just takes them a little bit longer to go okay yes I can cross and by that time cars and bikes and everything start to start to move um But for for people with with autism, there's a really uh, moving film that I shared on my on my on my Twitter feed that you just there's so many things that we take for granted, such as with when they have things like um, compulsivities. A lot of them sometimes have to then do certain certain rituals and and they can't move forward without those rituals. um, taking place. So the, the film um, is of a, of a man that can't, he can't move on. I think it's, it's something that he, he can't move on until there is an end to an activity. So for example, if someone's getting in their car, he's, he doesn't his anxiety doesn't lower until that person is, for example, in the car and they have moved. So the end of the activity has come to, to a very precise end. And so sometimes he has to stand and wait until that activity comes to an end. And you think, wow, that's that's an intense way of experiencing the world. Um, and while that's, that might be really hard to mitigate from an urbanistic perspective, but even in the sidewalk where all of a sudden new roadworks that get presented to him, again, that's that's really tricky for him because he has to have a very specific designated route that he likes and to then present without any dialogue between city and human um, to say how does this Change how somebody is now going to experience this um, to the amount of noise levels um, that we have in cities. I think the, the city's way too too loud for anybody suffering from anxiety or um, being on the spectrum.
0: There's a lot written about male and female differences in the brain. I mean, how, how much of that is real and how much of that is, is just um, a kind of a misunderstanding of, of biology? Wow.
1: Okay. So that one's a tough one. Okay. So there is, as everything in neuroscience, we still don't know. So you've got a school of thought that was presented by a scientist with an autism called Simon Baron Cohen. Um, Yes. The cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, um, and he's a he's a he's an a lead in autism, and so he was one of the first people that started to look at differences like theory of mind and empathy, and also tasks that of that people, according to his studies, that have that are on the spectrum, have a certain predilection for patternings for things that are repetitive, things that might be more mechanistic, and he called that the male brain. Which, of course, he didn't then say female brain, but if you call something a male brain, then the other alternative then is a female brain. Now, whilst there are differences within autism and certain things, I think it's a very dangerous, also slightly misuse of language, to gender an organ. The brain is an organ. We we wouldn't say that our lungs or our liver are having a male um, function. Um, so, so I think that, well that is where that discussion came from of of, of, of of the male brain. And he recently, just a couple of months, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, came out with, and here's more proof about the male brain. And I don't think anybody has a problem with what he is discovering. It is just the use of language. Um, but then there are, there is the socialization side of it, which then is. M- the almost the personification of the articulation does, is where we see the difference and it does become different. But in societies that, are, that have less variance in how you socialize genders, the differences are minimum. So, um, for example, if you are told, if you live in a country where you are not allowed to drive a car, for example, of course you don't have that skill so you are going to do things very differently than the male counterpart that is allowed to to navigate um a car and we they have and uh we have seen those differences there's also the big one which is spatial cognition that there seems to be variances in how a biologically female or i should say female um will Look at that! But what's the combination between socialization and what comes straight from biology? That's where we start to have conversations of difference so that we that we just don't know. But then you have to ask yourself, what are we actually investigating? Because do women never get home? Of course we do, <laughs> and we may get lost in a higher probability, maybe. But again, we still don't know what's biology and what's actually. Um, Social, socialization, because, of course, there are women pilots, there are women engineers, et cetera, et cetera, that would test very, very highly. And then that's the other thing, who are we testing? Because if they did test on 100 women engineers, mechanics, et cetera, et cetera, would they test differently than women that have been in more, quote-unquote, women-gendered roles? Possibly, but we don't have that data. Um, and then the final thing is, Does you know doesn't matter right that? um, That it's fine to have differences, but we're looking at output We're looking at the last bit of it uh, on a macro perspective that it doesn't mean that we're not that we are less that we are less abled Um, And then the final part of that is that then the differences between women is also really high. It's really variable. Like I mean, for as much as I can train and hope to be an incredible sprinter, that's not going to happen. That goes to those females, and the difference is biologically, physiologically, et cetera, between us is 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 quite wide. Um, and so we have to, I think, get away from from possibly those those binary binary terms, but. Um, at the same time, sorry, the last point is that women do have a menstrual cycle. But that, again, is very understudied. We don't know what the men, if the menstrual cycle is enough of a variation that, it, that will allow us to perform differently. We do know that physiologically it is very different. So, um, for example, um, there are higher rates of depression in women than there are in men. Is that due to a menstrual cycle? Possibly. We, we would obviously men don't, don't experience postnatal depression. So what does that mean from, from differences? But again, I think it's a question of saying, okay, yes, we're different. We're here, here, and here, but we're still both part of the human race. Therefore, pretty much the output would be the same.
0: So what are the, some of the key ways that... Um, I know one of the things that you work on is the kind of risk assessments or looking at how... Uh, the city needs to change um, or will or people are going to change and so the city needs to change for them what are some of the things when you're kind of projecting um, humans forward into the future what are some of the things that you're looking at there
1: discussing so I will talk about the mitigations and then if Josh you want to look at even more macro onto the side because that starts to get more industry and that's when I peace out. Um, so the, the mitigations, we, we actually go back to industrial engineering, that's our main actually interface is we take the science and we put it through the lens of industrial engineering which is actually the classic use of engineering is that it's an articulation of science. Um, and the mitigations we really like because we've been asked for at some points we're asked for guidelines or we're asked for a set of specific rules and i don't think that they necessarily solve the problem so doing things if this then that i think is very useful hopefully to 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 the built environment because cities cannot be demolished and we can't just start from scratch so It's all about mitigating the stressors and and allowing people to come back to homeostasis. So if, for example, as I said, you have to have those construction, um, you have to have a construction site close to somebody that has, that is on the autistic spectrum, then the mitigation might be use, make the signage more visible. A, B, create another route um, that is you know that in advance gets 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 the the person with a with ASD gets told what that is um, or dampen the noise, dampen the dampen how much how much uh, um, you are going to change that person, but we don't do that right We just you just see these things pop up and I, and I look at it I was like, wow. I don't even think an engineer or a civil engineer has come to look at the site to go, well, traffic is now going to do this. How is that going to affect X, Y, Z? We don't even do that. <laughs> so so, so yeah, so we, we do this, these mitigations to allow um, people within the built environment to use them to solve problems. It just allows for more flexibility for problem solving. It doesn't just go, okay, in order to have walkability you need these 10 things tick 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 because it, it doesn't work well because then you think okay well we have those five things but how come they didn't work in this instance and when we think well, okay well now you have maybe you have a different demographic that you didn't have in another area maybe that area has is surrounded by very different variables than than x and so we do mitigation so we can go in look at an area, assess it, assess it based on its demographics, on its users, and then go, okay, you will now need more of this. If you can't have that, then you need to mitigate with the following. And when in the city,
0: what are some things that kind of mitigate or allow us to return to stasis? Are parks really important to that? Is green space uh, neurologically more calming for us or?
1: So the neuroscience on that is still up for grabs Um, as in, We don't know it necessarily from a neurological perspective, i.e. what is happening in the brain to allow us to come back to homeostasis. What we do know it is from a psychological perspective and from a physiological perspective. So psychologically, yes, people experience or feedback that they feel calmer. Um, From a physiological perspective, because there's more vegetation, there's a mitigation to things like air pollution. There's also the affordance of being able to walk, to be able to run, to be active. Um, so um, there are, you know, which we know is very good for the, for the human system. But yeah, unfortunately, we still have to figure out if it's if it's a question of there's some theories that it might be the the variance. But the coherence and the variance within vegetation when you enter when you enter a forest or or a big woodland type type thing that you submerge yourself and your eyes aren't having to 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 be in in constant sustained attention you can let your mind wander because everything just makes sense there's nothing out of place or salient or anything like that so that just allows the brain to restore and to rest so there's the studies are heading towards that towards that direction but yeah unfortunately we we don't know where in the brain or how the brain is taking this information just yet do people if they live in cities long enough do they get a bit more
0: numb. Is it possible that we ad- we adapt to this habitat, or is it just that we're kind of so hardwired that all of the noise and the blinking and the and the unpredictable movement of the city is just always going to be a source of anxiety?
1: Um, well, I don't. I don't think so. So, the the thing with so one of the, so we've been looking at well being. And what we have now understood is that if well-being is looked at from a biological perspective, as I said, it's about homeostasis. So as long as cities give you a place to come back to homeostasis, then we're okay because it is impossible to be without stress. But at the moment, there just doesn't seem that we're heading in that direction, right? So we were at the same Uh, conference last week and you know adding things like drones you think okay well that's not that's just adding one more thing that our brain is having to pay attention to to make decisions on um, because even if we're not aware our brain is still taking in the stimuli Um, and and whether psychologically we might be able to quote unquote cope with it because we're very adaptable as humans there is still the physiological underpinnings that, that we might not get away with. So for example, writing the tube, you are, I can't remember what's the, the stat of how many toxins we're, we're breathing in, inside the tube. It's one of the highest concentrations of, of air pollution. So maybe we don't come out with our heart thumping at the other side and we're able to zone out with a book, but we're still ingesting that air. Um, which is not it's still not good for us so um, and then the conversation is you know with that are we then again tilting our body from being able to come back to homeostasis because we are again we're stressing we're stressing it out we're telling our entire system okay now you're gonna have to help me cope with all these toxins that are that are coming in and if on top of that you're not getting a good night rest if on top of that Lifestyle changes, family-type changes also compound on that. That's when, again, the human system just goes, okay, I am going to reach a threshold. And then from there, endocrine systems, our metabolical systems begin to change. Um, but I think if we, as I said, if we mitigate, so for example, if you are a building owner of a, or you own a workspace and you understand that you're, people that are coming in are commuting for for an hour in then look at your entrance look at your lobby how can you mitigate them how can you allow them to feel like they can breathe again um, literally and figuratively um, have good air quality in, in that lobby uh, um, possibly give them space for respite. Don't make them these vacuous, alienating spaces that, again, just stress the person out again, because it's then the, you think, where do I go? Do I belong? Um, where exactly am I going? Is this, am I going to this receptionist or do I, do I talk to this person? person that looks like it's security you know we we make them on purpose very <laughs> unwelcoming um and it's looking at things like that that you think okay where do, where can we bring in some respite for the human to come back and go okay i can mitigate against this now the advantages being
0: a happier employee uh, somebody who's calmer are they able to perform better? I mean, are there I mean other than you know the fact that you want to support humans in having a better lifestyle, are there are there really um, tangible benefits to to helping people
1: cope with the city? Um, well, yeah, I mean, at a very macro level, we'll have less cases of depression and anxiety and possibly even things like dementia and Parkinson's, which are now all associated with the level of pollution that we have. So that's one. <laughs> um, we will die less of horrible diseases. That could be one good advantage of that. Um, but yeah, when you're starting to have the conversation on productivity, we can't comment on productivity. We thought we were going to head in that direction. but. Um, it gets very, very nebulous, so our job is to go, okay, if a if human is healthy, of course they're going to show up to work healthier, which means that they will be able to mitigate work stresses better. right? So one of the one of the big things that is coming up as a skill is something called cognitive flexibility. So people um, that have cognitive flexibility, well, we all do just at different scales. So cognitive ve- flexibility is the ability to be able to use your existing resources to then apply a new solution to something that is different or unexpected. So for example, if a very small example, sorry, a micro example, it's like you're trying to open a door that has always been a push, but this time it's a pull. So people that would score higher on the cognitive scale, the, t- the, the time-lapse of them going, oh, why? Oh, yes, okay, it's the sign change. It says pull rather than push or whatever it is. That's having cognitive flexibility. When you take that on a, on a, on a more macro perspective, it can be things like, okay, we've got a new deadline or we just lost a client. How do I adapt? And those types of higher cognitive um, function do need a brain that is not an allostatic load. One, that is not also battling depression or anxiety or a cold or any other disease because then your resources are there to solve those problems rather than that problem. Um, And we're not affording people at the moment and cognitive
0: flexibility is kind of like creativity and resilience together.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it it uh yes, higher attributes can be associated to that. So yeah, so if you have good amount, I mean it's it's linked to things also to like memory and learning because um the more you have in your in your arsenal of skills, right? Um because you have Learned various different things um, that you can reapply, um, then yes, that will allow you for your for the final output of cognitive flexibility to be much higher. So, for example, if I was a painter and I only had maybe three tools to to access, then how I could solve the problem would be limited to those through those three tools. So, what I would be able to use for Solving a problem would be limited, but then if I had seven, then I can use more resources to be able to, to to solve the problem. Which then you could say that someone, yes, that is a very good problem solver, is quite creative because they can move and navigate um, much more nimbly through through the different challenges.
0: So I think I'll bring you bring you in, Josh, if you want to jump over because you wanted to talk about ad- adaptation. Um, and I think uh, it would be interesting, not adaptation, but sorry, application. So I think it'd be interesting to talk about how um, different businesses in the kind of real estate area are using these um, these ideas and this science to inform.
2: Cool. Uh, so I think it's interesting that the real estate architecture construction industry seem to be about 25, 30 years behind uh uh, fast moving consumer goods uh, the automobile industry air industries and such like that wh- that have had huge user experience uh, setups uh, looking at how to understand the nuances uh, that will support someone achieving their functions and tasks and they've often been quite binary in you know very quick you know human computer interface there's so much research decades and decades of studies on that and so what we're looking to sort of present uh, to the market in this way is a kind of pre Occupancy, or as much really a pre-development uh, human-based risk assessment, and the reason we're looking at that, and part of what Aracheli's um, been mentioning, is that you know just pick three standard industry quotes that keep going around the you know Leesman Index recently, forty-five percent of people said their workplace don't perform. Um, The fact that the Global Wellness Institute said approximately 12 percent of U.S. GDP is lost due to things like injuries, illnesses and disengagement in sort of workplace environments. But also, I think one of the key ones is um, a study came out in 2009 that there's uh, a 39 percent. Increase or sorry, potential for an increase of 39% in those developing mood disorders from urban living. So they're quite key stats in presenting actually what is it that we're doing wrong with our process? Why are we not factoring the subtleties of human experience uh, into decision-making more and more? And when you look at what the industry does across construction, architecture, real estate, it's all through post-occupancy analysis. And the reality is that it is uh, often too late um, you know, it's once a building's handed over, there's no standard period of time. You kind of have this maybe six-month period, so you don't know whether you're factoring things like novelty or the same people, what problems you're actually looking to solve through things like design. And equally, when you go through all of these studies, all these sort of reviews of them, there's very little benefit to the actual sort of developer, the landlord, very little to the architect, because often they're quite negative things. So the question is, um, sorry, I must say, in addition to that, it's, there's no direct requirement to do it. So the industry also lacks critical mass in data as well as a series of common data standards. So what um, Arateli has been leading the sort of the lab in developing is an ability to uh, bring that kind of stage seven of your uh, RIBA into your kind of stage one and deconstruct people into more sort of um, chunks that you can look at them through the lens of neuroscience, psychology, biology, etc., to start analysing right in the project, in our plan going forward, where do we identify potential risk? So, for example, uh, some work we did for a large investment fund putting up a uh, sort of tower in the city of London. Their question, you know, as a lot of uh, developers and people like that are going, is like, right, we've got to offer 10, 20% of this building as amenity, as how do we support our users? We realise we can't just deliver wall-to-wall office space. We need to create these places. their question is, well, we're spending X amount of uh, capital we need to make sure that's resilient so how do we know what work is going to be supporting in 10 20 30 years time Um, and so that's where we sort of would do an analysis of the urban environments as well as the type of workplace activities that we're going on so actually talks about things like um, cognitive flexibility so we'd map all of that out to then be able to produce these kind of risk assessment documents to help a um a development team in their kind of programming to understand, right, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, and to help tweak what's already done, but in a really systematic and kind of um, uh, joined up way of thinking. So if you're looking at, you know, if you're a master planner and you're incorporating um high levels of diverse uh, audiences or groups in a new sort of district of the town how are you going to balance the ratios of amenity space or dwell time uh based on how many times you need people to rest and those are the types of things that we'd start to identify going forward um do you have any particular question or a particular industry you want me to go I at? think
0: place is really what we're mostly focused on is really that sense of the, the district at the level of the district or the city. So I think, you know, what might you be looking at on the level when you've got these kind of more major mixed use? Um, how do you identify, I guess, you know, which who, who are the personas and how do you perhaps shape city um, in reaction to them?
2: Oh, I'll, I'll let Araceli go on to the personas, but I think just from the, um, you know, this from the developers' aspect, I think going back to that term that we are now very much, uh, I think the industry is running itself into the user experience world where brands are being defined through their transparency, their honesty um, in everything that they do, but also their messaging, that when it comes to looking at, you know, everyone is using all these terms everywhere going oh well-being and placemaking and yet very few can actually define it and so that's where we're looking at really going well what can inclusivity actually mean to very diverse populations and how do you do little tweaks and augment your built environment to be supportive of that and we can underpin that with a lot of sort of science to help support everyone from sort of landscape architects uh, all the way through to the natural development manager and i think from a sense of place that's the most important thing that we're working uh, working delivering on in that side um everything to do with how transport networks uh, evolve as, as well. I think um, I, I think the UK is quite an anomaly when you actually go around a lot of major sort of European cities, if we just stick with Europe for the moment. Uh, you can see how uh, car movement as well as deliveries have been orchestrated in a way to almost make it the sort of the passive uh, participants in a lot of place design. And yet we still need to kind of rethink how... Uh, you know, our, our core focus of place is still, is still designed a lot around mobility. And I think we need to have mobility. So again, you know, a lot of our discussions is never like, oh, take away this or definitely do that. It's understanding the proportions of, so of course people will need car movement because there are people with uh, physical disabilities, there are people uh, who you know, may struggle to move in certain ways. So you have to understand how are these orchestrated and I think that's what we would do by looking at a you know, wider urban analysis with an industrial engineer or looking at a civil engineer, sorry, for example.
0: So you'd be trying to mitigate, for example, if you did have car movement, you'd be trying to mitigate its impact on other people who are moving around the space. Does that mean always pushing the cars to the edges or do they, is there a kind of a, I mean, are there any general rules about how cities are being shaped perhaps um, better, what a better piece of city looks like?
2: I mean, from my side, I'll pass over to you actually, but I think from my side, it's all the proportion of what you're trying to solve. Um, and I think having a good question to start with is probably the most important thing. And I think a lot of uh, decisions are lacking. The most of the question is, can we get as many people in? Can we get as many transactions to happen? And I think more the question is, how do we get more families to have dwell time? How do we make it somewhere so that uh, someone can take their grandparent? Or in the case of uh, myself, somewhere I can take my younger brother, who is on the autism spectrum, who can't, you know, finds it a bit tough going into central London. And I think, okay, all right, placemaker in central London, how do you make it so that I will dwell in your area? Because right now I won't go there. And I think that's the kind of question that uh, placemakers really need to challenge uh, themselves in how they're kind of delivering that. Um, that's from my side. I don't know if you want to talk more about the personas Jelly, um, and how they fit into how we might look at um, orientating or orchestrating things like car movement, kind of what's right and what's wrong for those demographics?
1: Uh, well, I mean, we're never going to get rid of cars, are we? So it's sometimes I feel like it's a bit futile to have the that conversation. But what's interesting is how much of these problems are... Because everything's a human output. Economics is a human output. What infrastructure we create is a human output. How we create cities is a human output. Um, so... The problem with cars is safety and congestion, right? So is a car gonna run over a person that cannot have the same mobility as everybody else? So a child, a mother, a person with visual differences, person with autism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's mitigating that. Secondly, it's they don't have to be everywhere. Again, going back to mitigations can we say, okay, that's for traffic, this is for pedestrians. And the final thing is that most of traffic or congestion is human behavior, whether it's um, society moving towards this trend of convenience, that's our fault, right? Because the more you order your Deliveroo, the more traffic you're gonna create. The more you want your, your own personal convenience of having your groceries delivered at a certain time, that's more traffic on the road. So if maybe as a society we thought about these things and we thought, actually, maybe we don't need, as the, somebody said last week, we don't need the package from Amazon by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Maybe I can get it in a week's time or maybe I don't need it at all maybe I can go to the store and get it, right? So that part of it, we have to take responsibility for how many cars are on the road is also our responsibility. Then also when it comes to being on the road in itself, things like attention, I think, should really, really be studied now because we are changing. So when I see bad behavior at junctions, so I'm a cyclist, And when I see bad behavior, both from a pedestrian, a cyclist, or a vehicle, is when the lights are no longer at par with the human behavior that is around. So a light that changes way too fast, and it's high peak time, you're gonna get the pedestrian that's gonna want to jump and wants to cross the street faster. You're gonna get the car, again, that might run the red light, because they think I'm gonna be stuck here then for five more minutes, I don't want to. And likewise for, for for the cyclist. But if we observed and somebody came in again, did an assessment and they thought, okay, can and this is where the smart technological infrastructure comes in. That it can change with the movement of people. Why do we not have lights already that understand how much movement is happening, how much how much time? And this is our side. How much time are people willing to perceptively find? You know, sorry. How much time is perceptibly a um, a good amount of time for the different? things that we're doing because 30 seconds in our day and age now I think might be too long but if we also mitigate with other things then it might not be too long so for example my father's an industrial engineer and one of the ways that supposedly I don't know if it's urban myth or if it's actual the reason lifts have um, mirrors is because of the perception of time going up to your penthouse suite by, you know, a minute, a minute and a half that it might take you seems like five minutes. But if you put a mirror and all of a sudden you can look at yourself or whatever, distract yourself, then it's no longer the full one minute and a half. Right. Because it's about perception. So could we apply something like that to to road so things can happen with much more ease. And we don't get the stagnation and we don't get the traffic. So, you know, unfortunately when we see infrastructure, and again, from your question about how does neuroscience come into the, into the conversation is that we want to solve congestion by adding one more lane. We want to solve congestion supposedly by drones. That's not gonna solve it because where you can squeeze a car, a car will be squeezed. And what we need to pay attention is how our attention systems changing How do we adjust our lights, our intersections to to be more adequate to that change in attention? And then how do we do it to where we go with human flow? And then we wouldn't have the traffic. If you don't have traffic, you don't have congestion. If congestion, there's a lot less air pollution because the car is not just sitting there emitting pollutants.
0: What do you say to people who say, oh, it doesn't matter because it's going to be, everything's going to be automated. Everything's going to be, you know, it's all going to be um, self-drive vehicles and, and humans are going to be taken out of the equation. They're not going to be messing, messing things up with their, their cars and their, their free will.
1: Um I mean yeah possibly I, again everything is about context that's I think what we're always missing in these conversations what's the context of what you want so drones in the sky in the context of saving lives awesome because sometimes we can't get to people through vehicles and we might need um something delivered to a paramedic that can get there quicker that's fantastic we don't need it to deliver your pizza Right. So the same thing with with automated uh, with automation. Will it help certain demographics um, have more inclusivity? Yeah, perhaps. Does everybody need to be an automated car? Possibly not. Um, One of the things that we wrote in our playbook is what will that do to face to face communication if we go from one bubble to 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 the next? And we isolate ourselves more um, that we're not having human to human contact with the frequency that we are that essentially our biological and psychological systems need. That we, need, we are social animals. We cannot get it. We have not evolved from that. I don't think we're going to evolve anytime soon from that. Um, and that we need it. So I think it'll solve certain problems, and of course it'll create new ones.
0: Well, thanks both for talking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at TCMurray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.